You know, I mean, Rotten, no. where do they tell Ish. you not where do they tell you not to use it? Because this is KDE.org's announcement, and maybe they do say somewhere in here. I haven't read the entire thing. It says KDE ships plasma 5.4.0. And so it might, it might say don't use it yet. I don't know. But, I mean, in here it's not really looking – it looks like it's trying to market itself to new users. It does talk about having Wayland technology previews, but that's – okay, that's a given. Uh, they said that they – until they say it's ready to use it for, to be production, they're inherently not saying that it is. They don't have to – every time they make a release, this is not ready. Like, for example, I mean, GNOME was garbage until 3.6. I would argue 3.12, but okay. <laughs> Maybe 3.10. Well, I mean garbage <laughs> like fundamentally not workable, not usable. Like 3.6, it became where you could actually use a data yeah, daily. I mean, but okay, but do, you see, but do you see what I'm saying, how uh, what, you're, what you're saying essentially calls for uh, a tribal knowledge? Of uh, of how this works, like yeah, they're not clear about their their KDE is not being clear about what is what is usable and what is not. That's true, but that's pretty much all DEs. And you could like you could say, well, KDE also has a lot of other problems in the fact that their their website looks like it was made ten years ago. <laughs> but at the same time, they have other websites that are like sub projects that look nice, like Plasma Mobile looks nice, but they have their main one looks like crap. So like they have a lot of things that they need to work on. But they're not they until they say that it actually is ready to go for like just production uh, you know releases, then that's why four is still the stable, and that's why they still suggest it. It's just mm. not mm. It, like if, for example, I would love to have five I, five I just, point whatever. I uh, I mean that is uh, woo. So okay, so let's. Let's take everything you've just said, and I will grant you all of it is 100% true. And so now if you grant me that, like, most new people, or let's not even say new people. I would say casual Linux users and new Linux users, people who don't closely follow Linux news and things like that. I don't think it's unreasonable for them to think that something called KDE Plasma 5.4 with a very nice release announcement and press coverage around it, I don't think it's unreasonable for them to think that's production ready. 5.4, version 5.4 of something? I agree. Well, yeah, it's not properly uh, announced, sure, but there's like, for example, KD, uh, Kubuntu released fifteen oh four with five point two, which was completely unstable and a garbage decision. And I know why they did it because they were trying to get like some testing in, and they're yeah, so they can gradually go to right. five three and then gradually go to five four. Get more so users. I get, yeah, I get why they did it, but it was still a garbage decision because people who moved it was like, oh, Kubuntu's got this new KDE and like, and it's crap. So. And so people, when I, when someone suggests oh, I want to use uh, KDE on Ubuntu, the current solution is either fourteen oh four or don't touch Kubuntu. So is anyone in here using Plasma Five Desktop? I'm using it right now. I have two drives on my seventeen inch laptop. Um, I have the Wiley uh, Wolf Alpha two, okay. and that's you, and that's using Plasma five point three point nine five. Pretty current. Which yeah. It's like I just I just saw that 5.4 got announced today, and I'm like, well, I might swap the hard drives and just see if it, if there's a backport for Kubuntu 150, uh, 1504, mm-hmm. which I'm running on the other drive. But even the, uh, Plasma 5.3.2, I still you're still I'm like I've had less crash issues on 5.3.95 than on 3.2. 3.2 still crashes on Plasma 5 on whatever. 
I haven't had any issue with the audio app, and I'm wondering if their new audio app is causing the problem for you, Chris. You know what? I would I would not be surprised if my audio app didn't install. Simply because it, you know, I am in the middle. I installed last night, and maybe that's one of the few packages that has transitioned to the uh, K, uh, to Plasma five four. And because I'm not installing the rest of the packages, I didn't get it. But so WW, as a fairly consistent uh, Plasma five desktop user, is my characterization of its stability consistent with your use cases with the versions previous to version five four and its RCs? Yeah, like e- even Rotten's correct on like five point two because like. I, I've been trying, like, I was on, like, 14.04, then I went to 14.10, and I was pretty happy with Plasma 4, and it was working great, you know, I didn't really have an issue, and then, like, Plasma 5 came out, I'm like, that looks really good, I want to try that, and it was just, like, shut down script issues, and it was just, I could totally tell a difference between System D and the System Init, um, that they had previously, even between like fifteen ten and or no fifteen oh four and fourteen ten, and that was a pretty big difference for me. And then um, just like Plasma has been crashing consistently since five. It's slowly been getting better. So maybe maybe by the next release it will get better. But um, I really don't know. We still have like two months to go. Right. But this is this is what that happened last time. Like with three to four, the same thing happened. For the first few versions, it was a beta release, and people were not told it was beta. But in the in version five, they were told it was beta. I mean, I, I yes, I specifically remember that transition. I was a KD user at that time, and I remember it not being quite this bad for this long. I remember essentially what had happened was it was pretty unstable, and then it became more functionality and refinement features after release, after release, after release. It wasn't... We're seeing some of that, but I mean, I'm talking fundamental instabilities, and maybe you can blame the NVIDIA driver, the proprietary NVIDIA driver, darn it. Maybe you can blame something else that's not, you know, uh, the Plasma desktop, but... uh, I remember that transition because I lived that transition, and I do not remember it being this bumpy. Personally. Well, they were also doing a lot more than this time because they they were just adding features from three to four. Yeah, they weren't fundamentally rewriting yeah. pretty much everything and changing the way it's yeah. structured. And yeah. yeah, so there is a lot more for them to do. Yeah, you and know, essentially, in, like eighty percent of the entire project is replay is being like rebuilt. Well, right. You know, what's funny is, is in some sense, um, when GNOME made the transition from GNOME two to GNOME three, it was obvious. That was such a huge change. It was like of, they just threw out everything. It looked different. It was everything was different. But when 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 they went from from the Plasma Four desktop to the Plasma Five desktop, they actually took a lot of work to make sure it it looked and functioned very similar. And so the amount of revolutionary change behind the scenes, I think, is lost a little bit on the average user because so much functions and looks the same on purpose. Do you agree? Um, I think it's it's confusing for people because there are certain things that, that are very similar and they look the same. Especially like the worst part is that when people use four like K, uh, QT four or KDE four apps inside of QT five and KDE five or Plasma mm. five and they look the same. Mm-hmm. like they like, but they but they they're wrapped inside the new win- interface. I think that's a, a negative thing because it makes people think that those are like five version apps when they're just actually like yes. potentially really yes. old apps. I agree. Yes, I agree. That is also kind of confusing. 
right, so there's there's KDE, uh, you know, Plasma Five and Framework Five. They're doing a lot of cool things, and I can't wait for them to actually get it where the point where it is stable. But right now, it's still not like it's. I mean, I haven't tried five point four yet, but uh, they haven't announced that it's ready to go. So I would assume that it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much w. using. Uh, I'm pretty much using um, both um, versions, like fifteen oh four and fifteen ten alpha two on my system, just like as testing. I'm not full. I'm like using it for like web browsing, trying out Steam games, and you know, just seeing how it reacts mm-hmm. and how how it works. And if I encounter something, hopefully, I can do a bug report. You know, that's what I, I kind of. Trying to keep in mind that's really cool. Data that's really cool. You know that good for you. And you know uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is their language they used in the uh, release announcement for uh, Plasma five point four. The new volume control applet directly manages pulse audio. It says, and I thought that was particularly interesting. That set off some uh, ding ding dings in my brain, and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe it's time to try it again on a studio machine because I believe, if you recall, my main issues was it felt like that phonon layer there was uh, particularly interfering between uh, when I would hook up a, like a like a, a, a audio out to the line out on, say, the Bonobo. KDE would still only send the audio to my HDMI out, regardless of what I'd set in the, uh, in the audio out settings. And I always kind of felt like maybe there was like a miscommunication between uh, 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 phone on and pulse audio, because if I opened uh, Poof Control or Poova Control or whatever you call it, I, I could go manually set it. Still, and then it would work fine. But I just couldn't use any of the built-in KDE tools. And so when they say in that release announcement that uh, – in fact, I, I still have it open right here. I'll read it to you because I, when I read that, I was like, oh, what? Are you? I almost felt like they were like uh, talking to me here. here here's what they say. Uh, new audio volume applet. Our new audio volume applet works directly with Pulse Audio, the popular sound server for Linux. <laughs> Uh, to give you full control over volume and output settings in beautifully designed, simple interface. And I don't know if I'd call it super simple, but one of the things that jumped out at me is right there in the audio settings. Look at that. A volume slider. A volume slider. Took him, uh, took him a few releases, but we finally got it. I'm happy. I'm a happy boy. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 107 for August 25th, 2015. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that, you know, now that I think about it, I wish all of our gadgets just ran off of DC power. My name is Chris. we got a good show for you today, episode 107. Not only do I have something that I'm extremely excited to share with you guys that only the really Linux Unplugged crew gets to know about right now, but we'll be, we'll be telling everybody down the road, but exclusive right here, Linux Unplugged first. And after that, we're going to throw a birthday party for Linux. We're going to go in the Wayback Machine and visit Mr. Linus Torvalds in the late 90s, a much more humble, quieter, uh, down-to-earth Linus Torvalds to celebrate Linux's birthday. And then... There's a big old rumor floating around about Ubuntu. We'll get to that. And there's a new file system in the works that kind of accidentally came to be. And it turns out it's crazy fast. Even in its early days, it's smoking ZFS. It's smoking Extended 4, ButterFS. You might need a solid state, though. 
So stay tuned for that. And then later, you might have heard from LinuxCon that IBM is hooking up with Linux, and they're making the Mainframe 1, a mainframe designed to run Linux. And you got Ubuntu on there, OpenSUSE is on, or SUSE is on there. We're going to talk about that and what they're actually doing. And it turns out they're doing kind of what you could do on your PC, but just a lot of it. Like, I mean a lot of it. I'm going to tell you about that. And it's kind of quaint after all of that. And then... Supporting an open source legend, someone who's created a lot of code and someone who's about to create some code that we're going to depend on even more so, NTP, was recently um, kind of attacked for asking for support from the community. And uh, some folks threw in behind him and we're going to discuss that quote-unquote controversy. But I think it's kind of interesting when uh, a community that relies on open source code and uh, these kinds of contributions – gets a little riled up when somebody comes and asks for money. And I wonder what that's about. So we're going to discuss that. But before we get into all of that, i got to bring in our virtual lug. Time time appropriate greetings, L. Mumble Room. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey, 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 hey. Hello there. Hi there. Now, I don't know what the chances are that any of you are going to be impacted by my first announcement. I'm going to take a moment. Nothing really Linux-related at the top of the show. I am... Too excited to bury this later in the show. I'm too excited to tease it with an ad break because I want to tell you guys, those of you who listen to Linux Unplugged, get the uh, 411 first uh, today. Something uh, kind of a big moment for me. You know, I've been doing uh, Jupiter Broadcasting uh, full time for, I think, three years or so. Who knows? Um, and I, who, nobody can tell. And uh, one of the things that when you go off, and probably a lot of you who have ever done your own small business might be able to relate to this. Scariest thing you could do when you own your own small business is go get yourself a payment on something because then, you know, you got to make the business work uh, because you got to make payments. Uh, and I kind of got over that, like when we hired employees and stuff like, I, you know, <laughs> but it never for me, it never that was a mental block that never cleared. Uh, like I've never since I became full time, I kibosh on like new house. No, couldn't, couldn't get a new house. Didn't matter. Couldn't get a new car. We're not getting anything. I don't want any payments because that freaks me out because I now I'm paying for myself. Uh, and so it's been a few years, and one of the things through all of that that has been consistent is, man, I've wanted to do a roadshow. I've wanted to get on the road. I've wanted to do a JB Roadshow, do meetups, broadcast from the road, because, A, it's going to be full of technical issues and challenges, which sounds like a total nightmare, but it's a whole new set of challenges that I've never had to face before, so that sounds kind of exciting. And, B, there's a ton of content in that. Like, if I can't do a show for, for a day, but I put up a camera and I document the fact why I can't do a show, I'm going to release that as a show. So anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. What I'm really excited to say is this morning, I became the proud owner of Jupiter Broadcasting's first mobile studio. I got an amazing deal on a trailer RV, a 25-foot RV, that uh, is uh, some unfortunate circumstances for the previous owners. We became my good fortune, and uh, it needs a little work, which is happening right now. It's in the shop right now. And I'm going to have a mobile studio, and we are. this is going to be the rig that I will take and broadcast from when we do the Linux Action Show Cribs Edition, where I go over to Noah's house. So I'm going to start on the here on the uh, West Coast, and I'm going to drive across U.S. State, uh, U.S. 2. So if you are anywhere on U.S. Highway 2 between the Pacific Ocean and Grand Forks, North Dakota, I would love to come say hi to you. And I will be driving from the, from the West Coast to Noah's house. When I get there, we will do a last Cribs edition on Noah's automated house. We'll find the spots that are powered by Linux and the spots – I believe there are a few spots that are not powered by Linux. And I will reveal those spots on the show. Wouldn't it be interesting if Noah had a dark, dark Redmond-based secret? I will discover it and I will air it 
that dirty laundry when I get over there. So the idea is um, I'm going to uh, – th- th- this is, in, this is uh, in progress right now. It just all happened this morning. I'm going to eventually convert it into a uh, mobile studio over the next month um, on a budget. It's going to be pretty, pretty lean. But around uh, mid-September, ideally, um, like around you know, the September 19th time frame, we'll hit the road and be doing shows from the road in the mobile JB2 studio. So I'm very, very excited because uh, I did Tech Talk early this morning so I could go out there, did an inspection, made sure everything checked out. And uh, boy, am I pumped. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Like I'm going to have to run off batteries. I'm going to have to run off water tanks. I'm going to have to flush my poop. Yes, and Imacon has the first meetup. Imacon, tell the good folks where we're meeting up, actually, because uh, it's pretty exciting. So we're going to do a meetups. I want to do as many meetups along the way as possible. So go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash meetup. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm kind of planning for like a 17-day road trip to give lots of time to come say hi to folks. Uh, I, know, I know it's in Spokane, Imacon. I mean the brewery that we're going to be going to. It's a super cool place. And uh, we're going to do meetups along the way. And so go to meetup.com slash jupiterbroadcasting to sign up for that. And, uh, and uh, there you go, the steam plant. Steam plant in Spokane will be our, probably our first meetup along the way. I'm really pumped. I'm super excited. And I bet it's going to be awful. The good news is I happen to be tight with a mobile carrier. So I think I'm going to get a hookup on data connectivity. That said, though, uh, if you have any ideas how to boost signal, like on a budget, because like, I don't have a lot of money to do this, but I need to be able to get like any kind of scrap of signal I can get and get it into... The mobile studio. So if you have any ideas on how to do that, please email me, chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or any kind of thing like that, anything that you think would be very useful for me to do, know to do a, a mobile road trip. And I'm probably going to be doing some uh, test broadcasts uh, from it before we get going. But, uh, yeah. Whew. Yeah, Imacon, you're first on the list. Don't worry. So I'm really excited. And uh, it, we'll tell you more about it as it gets going. Um, and I, I just... I was going to do this road trip in my, in my truck or I was actually thinking about renting an RV because uh, who the hell wants an RV? But, uh, if I, but then the deal I got, this actually works out to be almost – if we take this one road trip, uh, it actually works out to be um, just about half the cost of uh, renting the RV to begin with. So it's, it's almost a no-brainer. And then we can uh, invest in actually setting up as a mobile studio. And so uh, trip one is kind of, hey, maybe we'll go to Grand Forks. We're going to do the last cribs. And this is going to be like me kind of learning what I'm doing because it's a very challenging drive in some aspects. Trip two, though, you know, I think then it's going to be like going to conventions. Like wouldn't it be great for uh, scale to uh, just take the rig down to scale and be able to broadcast live from outside of scale? And then we have control over our broadcast environment. Because right now, one of the trickiest things is getting control over the broadcast environment at conventions because you're really uh, – it's funny. It's a mixed bag between uh, no provisioned uh, Ethernet to uh, unions that actually object to you broadcasting in their area. Like it's, it's a wide range of issues that I never, ever thought I'd have to deal with. So I kind of, I kind of find it uh, uh, kind of appealing actually. So anyways, that's my news, and uh, you'll see that rolled into uh, content, and uh, also there's going to be a lot of stuff for our patrons that is going to be wrapped into this too. So if you go to patreon.com slash today, uh, you'll find out more about that down the road. And I'm really excited. We're going to go crash uh, Colonel Linux's pad, like uh, D1 says in the chat room, and uh, we'll do a Linux action show from over there. And uh, I would really love to meet up with some of you. I'm, I'm crazy excited. Something else I'm kind of excited about, and I wonder, I think maybe Popey, maybe it was you I got this from on Google+, but maybe not. I mean, you're pretty sharesy on Google+, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping this replaces Google Docs for the Jupyter Broadcasting crew. It's called Hackpad, and it's a web-based real-time wiki. Dropbox bought them 
uh, a while back and now is open sourced and, and placed it up on GitHub, a real-time web-based wiki. Now, talk about an awesome way to make some serious podcast show notes. And uh, Hackpad is a web-based real-time wiki based on the open-source Etherpad collaborative document editor. The Etherpad uh, package you guys might or may not be familiar with. I've drooled about it quite a bit in the past. And uh, now uh, the, doc- the Dropbox folks have posted it up online. It's a whole bunch of JavaScript and jQuery and uh, Node.js stuff. But uh, if anybody out there like has a droplet and an implementation of this, I would love to check it out because I am biting at the chomp. Chomping at the bite? What is that called? Chomping at the bit? to uh, replace uh, Google Docs. Now, in the, uh, in the mumble room is somebody who's very familiar with podcast show notes. Uh, and uh, those of you who may have listened to a few uh, other Linux podcasts, you, there's a guy, you're probably not familiar with him, actually, because, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really get on many shows, but from time to time he shows up on a couple of podcasts. And uh, his name is Joe. Now, Joe, help me. Is it Joe Resinger? Joe, is that how you pronounce it? Is it Reisinger Joe? How do you pronounce that last name? Ressington. Now, Joe, I've never heard of your name before. Uh, where maybe if uh, if I've maybe heard that, it, what what kind of shows would I have possibly have heard your name on before? What are you, you going to let me plug all my shows? Yeah, absolutely. How, how long have you got, <laughs> hey, Joe? If you if you're willing to take the type of command, you can plug away. Go ahead. Okay, Linux Luddites is the kind of main one, and that's a show where we try all the latest free and open source software and then decide that we like the old stuff better. Um. Recently just launched the Pi podcast, which is a show right. about the Raspberry Pi with yeah. Wimpy. Very uh, nice. He was the, the first guest on there. Um, and I also sometimes guest host on Mintcast, which is the show by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. And, um, oh, yeah, I occasionally guest on the Ubuntu podcast, but uh, only when they have me. <laughs> only when Axe not available. <laughs> Uh, very good. So what do you use? Do you have a standardized solution for all? I mean, you do a lot of shows. You must constantly be uh, having the show note challenge. What do you do? Google Docs. Yeah. Simple as that. Drive. Yeah. Does it drive you crazy for show notes or do you find it workable? No, I find it really good. I can use it on my phone. I can use it on the laptop. Yeah, I that can is use nice. it on my tablet. And uh, it's it's brilliant, I think. Now, what about and maybe see this is something we do that's kind of unique, and maybe this is why you don't have a challenge with it. Is what what we compose in the doc literally gets copy pasted onto the web page. We write we write all of our show notes in Markdown, so that way we only do the work once, and uh, we structure it so that way it can be pasted right into the show notes. But Google Docs was never created with the intention of you writing anything in any kind of Markdown language at all. And so it, it's constantly trying to help by like indenting and, and all kinds of things. I just find it to be a nightmare. Not only that, but I find it to be strikingly ironic that, that you know, uh, many of the largest open source podcasts are being created in a very proprietary system that is controlled by Google. Like it's just kind of ironic. Like we're all doing it because <laughs> it's the best solution. But it seems well, like by not now all of us are st- doing it, Chris. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, we use uh, Etherpad. Oh, and how does that work for you, Bobby? Well, you can put your markdown in there and not worry about something automatically automatically screwing with it. Um, it's not as friendly as Google Docs, and uh, it's not as straightforward to share with, like, guest presenter. Joe came on as a guest presenter recently, mm-hmm. and we had to monkey about a little bit. So, yeah. it's, you know, it, there's ease of use versus, you know, being freedom lovers and uh, and wanting to host the stuff yourself really and so uh how what is the process when joe wants to come on do you have to create him an account and then what like is that what you could make him a user id and that kind of stuff 
So that's what we should do. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or you have like a guest do. account or something, right? Don't, don't yeah, we should do the that. secret sauce, Popey. Don't no, no. Yeah, what, uh, yeah, what I actually do is I uh, I copy the notes onto my local PC and then I print them out and I fax them over to him and then he reads them for a piece <laughs> listen, of paper. Listen, listen, you could consider it an advertising fee for coming on the show week after week. Now, I'm just curious because I'm really considering switching to Etherpad, but it sounds very clunky. And the primary issue that I have is like, for example, on today's episode, I just wanted to just quickly loop ham radio into the show notes it's a boom share it i uh, added his collab email address bob's your uncle and now he's looped in and it takes me 10 seconds so i can do it while i'm on air and while i'm talking to you at the same time and that seems invaluable you don't you don't find that to be a like a barrier so the guy the guy you looped in to get in to talk about how he's using collab instead of using google you forced him to use google in order to contribute yes, to your show yes sir Yes, that's correct. Okay, just checking. <laughs> you avoided the question, but all right, very good. Hey, why? We, let's see. I got another question. Maybe you could avoid for me. Uh, apparently, Canonical is killing the Ubuntu Software Center with uh, a lot of vengeance. Uh, according to the VAR guy, uh, desktop app stores are dead, and their mobile-oriented equivalents are the future. That's the message from Canonical, he says, which is uh, quietly made clear that it intends to jettison the Software Center and Ubuntu Linux to focus on mobile apps for snappy Ubuntu Core. Uh, he says that uh, the software center is dead and that uh, Canonical plant has no plans. Uh, in respect, the, depre- the depreciation of the Ubuntu software center means that Canonical's open source operating system will be unique in another important way from the rest of Linux world. I don't know what to make of this, Popey, but there's a lot of people talking. There's a lot of people writing a lot of things about the software center. Do you have any yeah. opinions on all of this media buzz? Is it all just like are people just getting ahead of themselves or is there actually some real fire to the smoke that I'm not seeing? I, I like the fact that the VAR guy talks about how Canonical is killing the software center. And yeah. on the same day, Softpedia have an article titled, No, Canonical is not killing the yes, Ubuntu software center. Right. I center. saw that too. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you believe? I don't know. Who do you believe? I'm going to believe um, you. <laughs> uh, the, the, the VAR guy's article points to um, a really well-written article on, I think it's on PCWorld.com, um, which kind of summarizes the state of play of the Ubuntu Software Center, the fact that it's not had a lot of maintenance. You know, we've talked about this in the past with Wimpy and, you know, when he was talking about the rationale for removing it from the default mm-hmm. Ubuntu Mate install, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's not had a lot of love and it's not super performant and there are problems with it and there have been problems with de- the developers have experienced putting their apps in the store um, and, you know, that's, that's all well known. There's nothing new here, though, is there? It, I, well, that's what I mean. It, I, I don't know where they. I mean, they they kind of pull a bunch of threads together and maybe um, put two and two together. And it's not an unreasonable thing to think that an an application that where the upstream isn't actually doing any active development or maintenance is dead. You know, that's that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. Um, but we've got an LTS around the corner, so you know, what are we going to do there? Are we going to drop Ubuntu Software Center from sixteen oh four and then have no default graphical way to install applications that yeah. that seems that seems like not a good idea for people who are upgrading from 1404 so i i i don't quite understand why this makes sense um from a you know looking at the distro point of view but i can understand why on the outside looking in it totally does make sense you know it, it's what pushes my buttons is i i feel like uh so much controversy and crap gets stirred up just on speculation alone, so uh, it's, it, this seems like particularly. Yeah, one but those- in, in, the, in the in the fact that there's no like announcement, you know, to say, but do, there's no announcement saying 
we are not killing Ubuntu Software Center, right? So is it reasonable to expect that we are killing it? But no. equally, there's no there's no yes. announcement saying we are not killing Unity 8. <laughs> is it reasonable to expect we are killing that right. then? You know, just because right. it says, it doesn't say in the instruction manual, don't fill your right. VHS player yes. full of, you know, washing up liquid, doesn't mean, you know, you should do it. Thank it's, you. Thank it, you. It's, you know, ridiculous a bit. Yeah. All right. So, uh, point well taken, and that's exactly what was my my take on it as as well. Uh, all right. So, uh, enough with that. Today is actually an awesome day to be recording uh, Linux Unplugged. It is Linux's big, big, big birthday. Well, big in the sense that uh, in the U.S., after this one, that's when you get your big insurance discount, and you can rent cars for a much lower price. Pretty soon, Linux is going to be driving around in some nice cars when it when it travels. But before we get to that, and Something that I have to play for you guys, it is a great moment in time when it was a different Linus and Linux was a very humble upstart operating system. We're going to cover that. We're going to go back in time to the 90s uh, and talk about that. But first, I want to mention DigitalOcean, sponsors of Linux Unplugged. DigitalOcean is my go-to Linux infrastructure, and I think it could be yours too. And it's funny I even say that now. As someone who's been in IT for so many years and then became a podcaster and I thought, well, I'm never going to do anything on demand. I'll build all my own infrastructure. And when we, when we created and we moved into the JB1 studio, I set up a pretty nice KVM system using um, Proxmox and several Arch machines doing specific dedicated tasks and a couple, of, a couple of Ubuntu LTS machines on there. And I thought, this is how I'm going to do infrastructure for Jupyter Broadcasting. Uh, <laughs> nope, no, not once I discovered DigitalOcean. It just makes so much sense. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own Linux rig going. You could also do FreeBSD if you want, uh, but I wouldn't. Hmm. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Users can get started in less than 55 seconds, and that's really nice. I can't even get a new system set up in less than 55 seconds in Proxmox. Maybe if I really blast through it, but I'll probably screw it up. But here's the nuts part. I'm not even sure the, the electricity on the Proxmox rig is this cheap because the first, the, the base DigitalOcean droplet, $5 a month. And then it'll give you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. That is slick. That terabyte of transfer is a lot more than you probably think of. I mean, think about it in terms of your cell phone plan. How many, how many gigabytes do you use on your cell phone plan? Now apply that to the fact that you're going to get a terabyte on your DigitalOcean droplet. And so I, I've thought about this a little bit, and I think, you know, I'm not really using all of my transfer. They have a really good dashboard that tells you all this stuff, and you can get it on your phone too. Uh, so one of the things that's kind of nice is I decided to download the, the most recent Antigros release, or Antegros, or whatever. And I just, you know what? Like, why not continue to seed it for a few hours from my droplet? I have literally tens and tens and tens and tens of gigabytes to spare. So why not just help them out for a little bit? Like, it's not a big thing, but as, a, as an advocate of that project, it feels kind of good. And for $5 a month, I've got own cloud on there. I've got all kinds of other th- functionality on there. So the fact that I'm just, you know, I'm burning a few extra gigabytes doing that, that's awesome. And you can get started right now. For free for two months. If you get their five dollar rig, if you use the promo code D O Unplugged, D O Unplugged, one word lowercase, you can apply it to your account after the fact too. If you forgot to use it, it'll give you a ten dollar credit. And of course, their pricing plans are pretty straightforward. If you want something with more horsepower, it's right. It's just you go to this website; they have it right there. They're proud of it, so they don't try to hide it from you. It's just right, right up front and center. They also have a lot of really good documentation, so you can get a. Even if you're not a DigitalOcean user, they have stuff that's just like super applicable 
uh, to, to managing Linux installations because they have editors and they really actually care about that kind of thing. And the best part about DigitalOcean is I can kind of have a global footprint. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, and London. And uh, listen, <laughs> when I first started deploying servers, it was, it was literally $1,200 a month. So you have the base cost of the server that goes in the rack. Then you have to rent the rack. You have to rent the power. And then you have to commit to a certain percent of bandwidth usage. And that's about $1,200, $1,300 a month to get it in one freaking data center. And now, now I can have a $5 rig in San Francisco, a $5 rig in New York, and a $5 rig in Germany. <laughs> this just blows my mind. Like I just I can't even fathom it because then you combine that with the interface that is so much better than anything I ever ever used. And I for a long time I had to administer VMware ESX servers that were running on top of an old Red Hat kernel but forced you to use Windows to administer them. And it's just the slowest, most pathetic interface. Now, it's better now, but this was years ago. It was awful. And it burned me. It burned me so bad that I'm managing this entire Linux infrastructure, all Linux virtual machines, all powered by Linux, and I have to use a Windows workstation to manage it. Now, today, DigitalOcean has this amazing interface written in HTML5 that works on your mobile device or your desktop, even, even the console access, from, from post all the way up to login. All HTML5, like slick, super nice, really intuitive, and then they have an API on top of that so you can extend it even further. And there's a bunch of community apps that already take advantage of that API because if you're like me and you're never going to code anything, there's a bunch of good stuff you can take advantage of. So go use the promo code DOUnplugged. Try it out two months for free. Go put something up in the cloud. There's a new release of OwnCloud. Go play with it. DigitalOcean.com, DOUnplugged. And a big, big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. So let's celebrate. I, I can't play Happy Birthday as much as I have a soundboard sitting right here, and I would love to be able to play it for you. And the value of this is negative. I, I cannot play it. Uh, it is uh, Linux's birthday. Well, things I can play are things that I've personally recorded and captured. It's negative in the freedom dimension. So instead, I'll play those, uh, and I'll tell you about today. Today, August 25th, 2015, Linux has turned 24 years old. And uh, that's pretty super badass. I have a really great write-up from Ars Technica about it. They, it took them till about midday to get this posted. Just before we went on air, they got it up. And it's a really great write-up. They go back and they find, like, uh, Linus's original post. And everybody has seen that, like, a hundred times or more. But uh, they expand way, way beyond that. I'm going to read it just because, I mean, let's be honest, this is pretty cool. But uh, this was Linus 24 years ago today, August 25th in 1991. Hello, everybody out there using Minix. I'm doing a free operating system, just a hobby, won't be big and per- professional like GNU, for 386 and 486 AT clones. There has been brewing, this has been brewing since April, and it's starting to get ready. In fact, I remember back then Linus never thought it would run on anything but uh, certain types of like uh, IDE hard drives. Uh, and it took the mainstream press a really long time to figure it out, like an embarrassingly long time. And it, so much so that as an early Linux user, I thought maybe I'd, I had made a mistake. Like maybe I, I – for a very long time, I thought maybe I was betting on the wrong horse because nobody else was seeing what I was seeing. And I think what made Linux Fest and Linux Cons so electric back then is so many of us felt that way. Oh, I'm the only one that gets it. And then you'd go to a fest or you'd go to a lug meetup and you would meet other people that also got it. And you would connect with them and you'd realize people get what a big deal Linux is. 
But it took it took the average user and the mainstream much, 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 much longer. In fact, uh, I have a piece from the Computer Chronicles. I've played it before on the network, but I absolutely love it. It's only a couple of minutes long, and it's a visit to Linus Torvalds in 1998. And it was sort of like, well, look, the new Microsoft product, Windows 98, is coming out soon. Let's go look at the quaint alternative, Linux, created by some guy in his house. And 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 you can see the bias in the press. You, there's so much you can extract from this if you just take it all in from 1998. Here it is. And I love, love looking back at the state of Linux so long ago on its birthday. Oh, hold on. Let me turn it on. ...by a Finnish programmer named Linus Torvalds. Linus Torvalds is a 28-year-old software engineer from Sweden. In 1991, when he was a student at Helsinki University in Finland, he wanted to buy a personal computer, but he was not happy with the choice of operating systems. The problem was uh, the machine is just half of what you need. The other part is the software, and quite frankly, it just sucked. So Linus developed his own operating system, one he could afford, based on Unix. I had been programming for half my life at that point. I was 21, 20, yeah, 20, 21. And I, I just knew that I was the best programmer in the world. I mean, I was young, I was brash, uh, and I thought, hey, I can do better than this. Linux grew from one user to ten in its first year, then a few hundred. As more programmers discovered it, they added their own features. Today there are well over five million users, and the software is still open source and completely free. Thanks to a lot of programmers all around the world, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a lot of people working on it. But even the people who haven't actually made contributions in the form of code, uh, there are lots of people who have contributed in testing out things. Even when they didn't intend to, they, they did. By using it, they tested it. Linux took another leap in popularity this year when major computer companies, including Netscape and Oracle, announced their support of the operating system. There is plenty of free software available through the Internet, but few commercial applications so far. So how can Linux compete with Microsoft Windows? Linus says the difference is in the way it competes. Linux doesn't compete on the terms of the marketplace. Uh, Linux competes on its own terms, which is that, yes, you can buy it on a CD, but... A, if you buy one CD, you can install it legally on 100 machines. Uh, and if you don't want to buy the, uh, the CD, you can actually install it directly over the Internet. If Linux is given away free of charge, how can anyone build a business selling it? VA Research is one company that is not concerned by the lack of licensing fees. VA has built complete ready-to-use Linux systems since 1993. The company now ships an average of 20 systems a day. They are no threat to Dell or Compaq yet. They're dependent on what works best for Microsoft. On the other hand, we have a lot of leeway there, and we have a lot of things that, that we can do to make those things better. We can add to Linux. We can develop code in Linux where it makes things more stable, more reliable, and supporting our hardware and our customers better. 
For Linus Torvalds, his creation may not provide him with a paycheck, but there are other rewards. It's great for your kind of self-esteem to have people use your system and really enjoy using it. It's a, it's a great feeling. You, I mean, I, I feel that I've done something relevant. For the Computer Chronicles, I'm Sarah O'Brien. So uh, that's a, wow, wow. That's a trip down memory lane. That's back in a time when uh, VA was still a thing. Uh, Linus didn't work for the Linux Foundation. He did all for free still. And uh, in, you can see in 1998, they were still very skeptical about what it would be. It was just on the precipice. So here we are. I mean, next year is 25. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. It's just um, it's kind of incredible. To look, back, to look back like that, and uh, it's just so much has changed. So much has changed in the way the press covers it, too, uh, which really stands out to me, um, watching that clip. And, uh, you know, uh, also the other thing that really stands out to me as a father is uh, at the end there in the video, uh, uh, Linus is putting uh, his daughter into a swing, and she's, uh, she's just a little girl. And it was just two weeks ago that uh, she was pretty much, you know, an adult now. And she was talking about uh, diversity in technology. Just a couple. I don't know if anybody saw that, but uh, Linus's daughter was. Uh, she gave a speech about diversity and uh, women in technology. And we just watched a clip of him putting her in a swing as a baby. It's that's uh, that's amazing that he has been in the public eye now for this long, and uh, how much Linux has changed since that clip uh, originally aired on the Computer Chronicles in uh, nineteen. 19- 98. And for those of you who want to look that up, you can look that up. That whole episode, Windows 98 and Linux, I think is the title. And uh, there's a little Easter egg in there if you watch the Twit Network. Uh, Mike Elgin is in there. And uh, his delivery style is exactly like his delivery style is today. I'll leave that for you. Anyways, uh, moving on, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, our next sponsor. And then we're going to jump into this new file system. So Ting. Uh, Ting... uh, I don't know for sure exactly how my road trip's going to work out, but I think a big, a big part component of it is going to probably involve Ting. It's just mobile that makes sense. I'm just going to pay for my usage. That's what I love about Ting. Go to uh, linux.ting.com. I mean, just go there now anyways, just to support this show, just to learn more about Ting. And I, I just encourage you, to, even if you're not going to switch to Ting, just go take a look because it's, it's kind of funny to see like um, – there is uh, – if you follow different corporations, some people like they put on a pink shirt and a leather jacket and they say some of the same stuff that Ting says and, and that kind of works. Uh, other companies like they try to restructure their, their pricing plans to make it more similar to Ting and uh, as somebody who's been on Ting now for two years, I, <laughs> I look at this and I go, oh, it's wow. You guys are finally trying to catch up. Ting is actually making you a little nervous. Go to linux.ting.com and find out how awesome Ting is. It's, it's mobile that makes sense because there's no contract and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line and then it's just your usage on top of that. So I got a couple of devices because it's not a big deal. It's just $6 for the devices. They're all unlocked. They have no whole customer service, so I'm totally comfortable putting like my family on that because – I really, at the end of the day, I do not at all want to deal with tech issues. So the fact that they have a no-hold customer support at one eight five five ting ftw between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., that right there is so nice for me when I recommend it. Plus, they have a GSM and CDMA network, so there's a lot of coverage options depending on like what best works for them. Uh, when Noah was out here, it was interesting. Noah has really good coverage in Grand Forks using CDMA. 
And when he was out here in the Pacific Northwest, he switched over to GSM, and we were getting 20 megabits uh, right here, 20 megabits right here in the JB1 studio on the GSM. So it's, that's what's cool about Ting is if you're even just a little bit savvy, you can make those kind of command decisions for yourself. Oh, CDMA is better here. GSM is better there. I want data. I want call. You know, all those kinds of things. And you just pay for your usage. Ting doesn't care if you turn on the hotspot. And they have a, they have a dashboard that helps you manage all of it. Go to linux.ting.com right now and try it out. Linux.ting.com. And just go try it out and just see what you think. You can get $25 off your first month of service or $25 off your first device. They have a lot of really inexpensive devices and a lot of really great devices and a lot of data-only devices. They have a savings calculator. Click that. Just kind of get an idea of what you would save. And I'm asking you, even if you've just uh, recently got a contract, to try it out. The reason I suggest that is uh, they have an early termination relief program. So if you kind of have second thoughts about signing up for a contract, and, you know, it's funny because you kind of got burned. If you recently got in a contract, even, I don't know, in the last six months, I mean, these contracts, how long are they? Two years now? So even in the last year, if you got in a contract, didn't you just get burned? Because Verizon just said, oh, contracts? Well, we're going to do something different. Of course, you're going to pay more, aren't you? Yeah, you're going to pay more. But we're not doing contracts anymore. Oh, that really nice new smartphone? Yeah, just pay us $22 a month for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good system. I don't blame them for trying to do it. I mean, yeah, it's making them a whole lot of money, and Wall Street loves it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's just awful. Linux.ting.com. Go there, no contract, no early termination fee. They have an early termination relief program, and you can get a great device that's unlocked. Linux.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Okay, so, uh, you know, for quite a while I was running my rigs on ButterFS. And, uh, of course, I'm always doing uh, TechSnap with Alan. He's going on and on about uh, ZFS all the time. And I I eventually gave up on ButterFS. I switched over to uh, XFS. For my machines, and I've been pretty happy, but I kind of wish it had a little more modern feature set. And that's why this story has gotten my attention. Maybe a lot of you saw it too. A new Linux file system that aims for speed while having some ZFS, or as uh, you Americans say it, ZFS, ButterFS like features. And uh, (laughs) I don't know really much about it because it's super, 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 super new and it's totally not ready for production. But it's called Bcache FS, and it's based on Bcache, the Linux kernel block layer cache, for pairing a large-capacity hard drive with a low-capacity, high-performance solid-state drive to act as a cache. In developing this block layer system, Kent Overstreet – now, remember that name, Overstreet, which is a great name, by the way. And by the way, before I talk my ass off and I sound like a jerk, if anybody knows more about Bcache, please feel free to speak up. I'm just – based on my research and things like that, I'm going to regurgitate what I have learned today and yesterday. But if you are in the mumble room or in the chat room and you know more, absolutely, please let me know. But anyways, the idea here is you kind of get like uh, Apple's uh, uh, effect and and, and the other effects where you can have some stuff on on your your big spinning disk and some stuff on your solid state disk that you get to more more often. And in the process, Kent Overstreet realized that they're basically writing their own file system. When, in his own words, he says, the Bcache code base has been evolving and metastasizing into a full-blown general-purpose POSIX file system, a modern copy-on-write file system with checksumming compression, multiple device support, caching, and eventually even snapshots are in the works and all other kinds of nifty features we can already envision. I and other people are working on Bcached. We realized that what we were working on was almost by accident a good chunk of the functionality of full-blown file system needs. And there was really a clean and elegant design to be had if we took the time and ran with it. 
Bcache itself has been in the Linux kernel since kernel 3.14 in 2013. Now, uh, it is not anywhere near ready today, but he's aiming to add file system features that would match the performance and reliability of Extended 4 and have the features of ButterFS and ZFS. That's kind of the goal. Right now, BcacheFS supports multiple disk drives today. Caching, tiering, native Zlib file system compression support, which file system compression support is not like file system compression in the 90s and in the 80s. We now have i7 CPUs and massive amounts of disk bandwidth. It is now faster to compress and decompress data off a drive than it is to read uncompressed data. It's, it's unbelievable, but I've actually done my own tests for writing media, and it is fantastic if you have a great processor. In Overstreet's uh, announcement, he stated some performance numbers for uh, BcacheFS compared to Xena 4 and XFS and ButterFS, and he says it's looking really good. So I was curious. He says it's looking really good. It's looking real good, he says. Well, I actually put the numbers in the show notes. It's looking fantastic. It's early days, but some of these benchmarks... BcacheFS in its early state is already outperforming Extended 4 and ButterFS, not by a lot, but a little bit in most circumstances. And yes, ZFS. Not all, though. There are some circumstances uh, where Extended 4 is definitely outperforming uh, Bcache. But uh, today, right now, it's looking really, really good. And these are all based on the early uh, Pharonix numbers, so uh, yeah, salt and all. But uh, <clears throat> for example, on the compile benchmark, that's specifically like when you're compiling something where Bcache really sucked. But not like worse than anything else. It turns out all these different file systems suck really bad when you're compiling software. It's like a, it's like a worst case scenario for file systems. <laughs> Sorry, developers. Uh, and so uh, Bcache FS has got your back, though. Uh, 140 milliseconds is what Bcache clocked in, and, in at. Uh, extended 4 for this particular test, 299. ButterFS, 164. XFS, 209. Uh, and, and these numbers are all arbitrary, but they're just – the numbers themselves don't necessarily matter except for within the context of all on the same system, all basic uh, baseline performance here. This system is really, really fast. It is really set up to take a, advantage of many things that we attribute to ButterFS and ZFS today, and it's good to go. And so I, I got to ask the mumble room, are we ready for another file system? I mean should we just be waiting for ButterFS to stabilize or is, uh, is, is it too late? Is, is, I mean, in my opinion, I don't think I'm going to try ButterFS for years. Uh, Wimpy, I, I, let's start with you. What do you think? Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. Really? Yeah, well, uh, like you, I've not had the best success with uh, B3FS. And this is already in development, and it's a fair way along. And I'm interested to see how it develops over time because Linux does need something to go up against ZFS. And although B3FS has been around for a long, long while, it doesn't seem to be ready to compete yet. Mm. Joe, do you follow the file system stuff as a as a Luddite yourself? Do you care much? Do you do you think do you think ZFS is the new hotness, or is what's your what's your opinion? What's your take and opinion on this? Well. Starting with BTFS or ButterFS, as you call it, I remember you and Brian talking about that years ago, mm-hmm. and we're still in a position where you're not using it, and it's not really production ready. I tried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing with the file system is it's so fundamental 
to your operating system and everything you do that you need something that is truly tried and tested. It's not like using uh, an IRC client. If that crashes, you know, you restart it, no problem. But if you are talking about your file system, if that is not 100% rock solid and you could potentially lose data, okay, fair enough, it all should be backed up and everything. But then you potentially talking about a lot of time to restore your backups. And so it's it's not something that I would be particularly interested in. And, yeah. and another thing is that why pile all of this extra functionality on a file system when there are things you could use external programs, you know, third... Well, like uh, LVM, know, for stuff. example, like LVM, which has been in production for years. Yeah. Why try and force that stuff into the file system where it doesn't belong, as far as I'm concerned? Hmm, that's a really good point. Uh, Popey, I wanted to ask you from a production standpoint, I don't actually know uh, Ubuntu Mobile or Touch, whatever you want to call it, uh, what file system does that use? And when you look at this from a, like, I have to ship this to millions of people, uh, is, there any, is there any room for a new up-and-coming experimental file system? Yeah, totally. Uh, we use EXT on the phone, but I don't think it really matters largely for us because um, the vast majority of the software is, is delivered as a read-only image. So it could be pretty much any, any file system so long as it works because you're not going to corrupt it because it's read-only. Um, the applications and your user data, sure, you, that's, that's, you know, that's different. And you're going to be writing there and you're turning it off while it's doing stuff and all kinds of nasty things. But I don't think ButterFS could be considered not ready given Yola ship their selfish mm-hmm. phones with ButterFS well, and, by and the first thing, the, the, the number one email I always get anytime I say something negative about ButterFS now, or B3FS, whatever you want to call it, is, well, Facebook uses it. And I mean, and I've used it, and I actually have, I have, I have a virtual machine that is like the most critical virtual machine here in the JB1 studio running on ButterFS right now. I use it too. Jupyter Broadcasting uses ButterFS. In a, on a super important server that I would be very sad if it crashed. And, and I also have used it on two different production systems that were very critical that I had to dump it and go to XFS. So take that for what it's worth. To me, it's as somebody, and, and I, I know I don't mean to be like this guy, and I hate to say this, but before I became a podcaster, I was doing IT for 14 years. And one of the, and for, for the biggest chunk of that, I was responsible for the uh, as a as a customer, if you have a bank where you can do images of your of your check and you can take a picture of it or your ATM scans it, I was responsible for managing the infrastructure that stored all of those images, OCR'd them, and sorted them properly. And I can tell you that file system reliability is something that I became intimately familiar with, and I I got involved in the industry of data storage. And anything that has the track record of ButterFS is a joke. It looks bad. I'm sorry it's got nice features. I'm sorry it could deliver. It could be the future delivery platform of Linux software if you listen to Lenart Pottering. But I have to tell you from somebody who spent a lot of years in, in really big iron, important data infrastructure, ButterFS is a joke. It is a joke, and nobody's going to deploy it. In, the, the reason why Facebook is deploying it is because those systems run in RAM. Okay, you guys? They run in RAM. If there's a single problem, they reboot them, and they come right back from an image off a TFTP server. It doesn't matter. Data, data integrity doesn't matter, and it's very fast. It's a good performance system if you're running your file system out of RAM. So ButterFS works in that scenario. Just because Facebook uses it, and I do not want 200 emails on this topic, just because Facebook uses 
uses it doesn't mean it's a production-ready file system. It makes Linux look bad. And that's why I look at these things, and you know what? I just got back from LinuxCon, and most of those guys are talking about storing your containers on ZFS. Now, how are they doing that? How are they implementing the back-end ZFS storage? Are all of those container solutions where they're running thousands of, of containers, are they going to do all of that with a ZFS implementation in user space? I don't think so. Something's got to give there. So I, in my opinion, I look at BcacheFS and, God, I, I hope it happens. because. And I want to take – so something else that came out of LinuxCon is this Linux One mainframe from IBM. Uh, Canonical's in on this. OpenSUSE or sorry, SUSE is in on this, and I want to play a little bit of this clip because I I think this this is a good example of how big data and and really all of the different applications that we've all heard about, all the different open source projects that we've all we've all heard about, can be used at a massive scale beyond anything we've ever thought of before, and why the backend storage for all of this is such such a critical key component to all of this. The Linux One server, it's a pretty extraordinary server for analytics, specifically for unstructured data, such as live tweets and news, and combining the unstructured data with structured data such as Postgres, MariaDB, and MongoDB. MongoDB could be used for customer information in this demo. MariaDB would be used for financial information and Postgres for geospatial data. So, for example, in this box, I can, I can type any topic, such as um, Cecil the Lion. And when I do that... What you see are live tweets and news streaming into MariaDB, and the origin of where these tweets and news are occurring, their cities and the countries, are streaming into Postgres. At the same time, we have Spark Analytics running, doing sentiment analysis, highlighting negative sentiment in pink and highlighting positive sentiment in green. All right, uh, so what? Let's, let's, let's add more load to the Linux One server. So what you're going to see are three data feeds. You're going to see Postgres, MariaDB, and MongoDB. This is the icon for the S&P 500 financial data. We're going to start streaming financial data into MariaDB, and we're going to start streaming trades, financial trades, um, and their point of origins into Postgres. We're going to use Spark Analytics to analyze all this data in MongoDB. We're going to have live tweets and news streaming into MariaDB. And we're going to add another Spark Analytics service that determines how live news and tweet events uh, uh, influence financial markets. This entire infrastructure is written in Node.js. It's managed by Docker Swarm and Docker Compose. We're using Chef to provision applications into Docker containers. There's a Docker container for Postgres, a Docker container for MariaDB, and another Docker container for MongoDB. Spark Analytics is all running in Docker containers. So put another way, essentially what they're doing on some of these mainframes is they're taking all of the stuff that you might spin up on your own droplet or your own server and they're making it all run on one machine, and they're doing it all in crazy, crazy, crazy real-time. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just so that way we can kind of keep it interesting. And she pulls in real-time sentiment and, inf- and market data 
for the Greek market crash. This is happening live at LinuxCon while she's doing this. And what I want you to keep in mind is this system that she's demoing is being flooded with real market data. And she's not giving it arbitrary queries. She's giving it very specific data queries where it has to search through the database. And what she gets from this is astounding. What, what, we want to drill into this, right? We want to use this information. So let's click on one of these points. And what you see here is a globe. And um, each of these globes, remember, we're, uh, we save that geospatial data for some reason. Where are the trades occurring? So the red towers is where selling is occurring. The green towers is where buying is occurring. The height of each tower is proportional to the volume of trades that are growing. I want to load up this Linux One server. I want to get millions of web events to billions events. And to do that, you have to type a financial crisis. You, you, why not include the trades? I just want to make sure we understand this. We're talking about billions of events. Now, as somebody who processed all of the customers in Washington State's image transactions as they are cashing their checks and making transactions, the idea of billions transactions, and I used an IBM mainframe running System 390 to do this. This is blowing my mind. So here in Europe, um, well, you know, some, some, some of the European countries are selling uh, the red towers, but there are some, particularly, this is interesting, again, this is real data. In Germany, they're buying, they're seeing this as an opportunity. So let's spin it around. Let's, let's go to India, okay? India, right here, the, uh, the coastal cities, they are selling. New Delhi, they are selling. They're, they're kind of they're pessimistic about, uh, about the Greek financial crisis. Let's, uh, let's go to China. I'm very interested in China. So China, Beijing, they see this as a buying opportunity. Here's those green towers. Shanghai is selling. Um, I'm, I just like Australia, right? So here's Australia. You can't really see it that well. What you see are the coastal cities, and they, they are selling. But as you see, this is real-time trades going on at the same time. You see the amount of towers, buys, and sells proliferating. It's giving the world a mohawk. So let's go to North America. Let's look at the United States. I'll stop right there. So this, to me, is a fascinating illustration of, of where all of these day-to-day open-source projects that we hear about can have a massive, massive impact. And if we, as Linux community, as the Linux community, if we cannot provide the back-end storage to this, I, I, worry about, I worry about long-term relevancy as the platform continues to evolve into containers. As these applications, she said at the beginning of this presentation that all of the different programs are being delivered via a container. She also said they're running on top of SUSE. But if you extract all that out, like say you take the vision of the CoreOS project and you make, and you make the app spec such that you can run the same container on a Windows machine that has Hyper-V, on a Mac OS machine, Mac OS 10 machine, and on a Linux machine, and on a BSD machine, well, if at the end of the day what you really, really need is a super high-performance, super well-designed file system like ZFS, I'm not sure why you would choose Linux as the machine to run the container. Uh, maybe I'm just being hyperbolic here, but to me it seems like Linux is the most convenient platform because that's where the development is happening the fastest and people can just jump in and have an impact and deploy something today. But as this matures and the requirements of a container-based environment develop and become more obvious – I don't necessarily think Linux is in a good position to actually provide that. That's what I'm worried about. Anybody else in the mumble room want to jump in? Am I maybe just 
out of hand. I mean, this I'm looking back at this and I'm thinking, as a system administrator, if I'm going to put all of my applications in containers, and then once I have them in containers, I can manage them very easily using a plethora of projects that I just saw at LinuxCon. And, and I'll, really, after that, all I need is a good back-end storage. That's, then I'm pretty much set. It, it, am I missing something here? Am I getting out of hand? I mean, what am I not understanding? Nobody has any intake. Nobody has any input on this, really. Really, I don't buy that they're gonna that anybody's gonna move their entire stack to like a Windows machine. I mean, BSD would be the only one that that's what I think that I think poses a a threat, you know. But I think it's a so what if I think these what problems if, are solvable. Ryan, let me ask you this because you, you you nailed it. I don't think they're gonna go to Windows. I think that'd be crazy. Well, what if though? What if what if FreeBSD is kind of? I mean. I I am totally aware of the timeline of the projects, the existence of how long they've been around, the history of them. Just please go with this metaphor. What if FreeBSD, uh, you know, like public perception-wise, is where Linux was in that Computer Chronicles clip I just played? What if today people are writing off FreeBSD as not all that applicable because we have this great superior operating system that's on all of these systems that has an obvious market advantage – with all of this momentum and money behind it, just like Windows had. What if FreeBSD is at that point? What if it's at the point where, like, God, there's – for those people who have, who have early vision, for those people that were early on Linux that saw this is the way that I should build my infra- – this is the system I should build my infrastructure on. This is the platform I should build my product on. What if that's where FreeBSD is at right now? And from those of us who are in the entrenched system, we would be the Windows users of the 90s right now. What if we can't see it? Is that impossible? Well, that seems like the assumption is that Linux is standing still, you know, and we're not having things that are like BcacheFS, you know, that's that's a attempt to improve, you know, upon the file systems that exist under Linux. And uh, also, if BS, if open, you know, FreeBSD wins, so what? I mean, it's still open source. <laughs> mm. Actually, Ryan, your first point is really well taken. Uh uh, BcacheFS, Docker, Cgroups, all of that are actually an indication that Linux continues to be the spot where innovation happens. Uh, in fact, so far, Linux has moved faster than the rest of the industry, hasn't it? And if you look at where it's gone, there's been other systems that have developed containers or zones or jails. And you know what? They haven't done a blip compared to what Docker and containers are doing today. That's a billion-dollar yeah. industry. Boom, right out of the gate. And I'll tell you what, it's all happening in Linux. And the reason is because of the GPL. That we all, you ha- it all comes back, I believe, to the GPL. And I think that is, the, that is the thing that will continue to be Linux's advantage for the long term that nothing else has. And it is, for the lo- for, I think, since the beginning of Linux, and it is today, 24 years later, the GPL that will give it the heads up, that will always keep it ahead of everything else, that will always keep people when you're investing in the next thing, when you're planning on the next technology, when you're banking on the next platform, you're going to use Linux. And it's not because of anything else. The GPL makes it possible. The GPL makes that code contribution have to happen. It makes that evolution have to come back to the source. And because that evolution has to come back to the source, it always has a little bit of a head advantage of anything else. And I, I, I actually – I look at where we're at and I think we're actually – regardless of file system, regardless of anything else, I, as much as I – I'm not a Richard Stallman guy. I'm not a GPL fanboy. But when it comes to our kernel, Linus made a very, very, very good choice when he chose the GPL version 2. 
And I think that continues to be our main advantage going forward. And, and as the market begins to change, and I very, very, very personally believe that after going to LinuxCon, after listening to the things that the leaders of the Linux Foundation said, after listening to the kernel panel not have a very good response to containers, after listening to them stumble over the fact that they missed C groups to begin with, after hearing all of that, it doesn't matter because the GPL at the end of the day, I think, keeps the Linux kernel more, adva- more competitive than perhaps, say, BSD, even though they have a great file system, even though they have a great everything else, right? It doesn't matter because if you base something off of the most competitive product in the market today, you have to contribute it back. That momentum just continues to build upon itself. That's what's beautiful about the GPL. So, and, and there you go. Get it out of here. So, uh, anyways, I, that's why I, 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 went, I left LinuxCon, and it took me a couple of days. I'll be honest with you. We recorded the Linux Action Show, and, and I hadn't come to a conclusion on this yet because I was like, shit. What if the people responsible for being like the flag holders of Linux, the Linux Foundation, they're the people that put on LinuxCon? They're the people that called it ContainerCon? They're the ones that decided the theme? What if the, the quote-unquote stewards of Linux or the flag holders or whatever you want to call them or the stakeholders, what if they're the very people ushering in the irrelevance of the platform itself? I know this sounds really hyperbolic, but I'm just thinking from, from a, like a watching market trends from a very, very long term. Containerization, and maybe you have to be at LinuxCon itself, but it was, it was in the air. It was unbelievable. Like uh, the, the people that weren't del- delivering their applications via a dock container yet – we're apologizing for it. They're like, yeah, we're really sorry. We're going to have that done real soon. It's like number one. It's number one on our list. Like they were apologizing for the fact that, that you can't get their application in a Docker container. I mean it was blowing my mind. I've, I've not seen anything like this. And so I was like, geez, what if, what if we go to the trouble of putting everything in containers and then we just abstract away Linux altogether? Uh, because these systems, these, these management systems, and there's, you know, um, I don't know, 55 booths. Literally, they're all showing different Docker management solutions, and, and all of them are basically trying to solve the same problem, and all of them abstract you away from Linux as much as possible. They abstract you away from applications. It, you, could, you, could become, you could become an administrator of these systems never having ever heard the word RPM, DEB, or package in your entire life, and you could deploy an entire application stack on a web server all around the world. But why is that a bad thing? I mean, we've thought a problem of, you know, for the longest time, people said, I don't want to write for Linux because I don't know. I I know it won't run on everything. You know, there are all these different distributions and it's really, you know, kind of fragmented. And so a lot of companies said they didn't know what to target. And it it, it probably was a cap, uh, uh, you know, a way to get out of creating something for Linux. But um, but. Now that they have these containers, and I think they're only going to become more relevant over time, continue to become more relevant, you know, this is something that people can target Linux as an entire platform with a container and not worry about the ins and outs of developing, you know, these packages for every single distribution. Joe, I don't know uh, if you have any thoughts on containers and Docker, but sometimes I... I, uh... I got the feeling and the opinion. So uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say there's probably nearly 50 booths that all were trying to solve the problem of managing Docker containers. And I started to think to myself, 
maybe it's just a mess. Maybe it's not a manageable problem. Maybe it's really just one of these. It's going to become like it's going to become the issue of when you ship an application and you statically link the binaries and all the libraries. You have to continually update that separately from the entire system, and all of a sudden it becomes a complete management nightmare. Joe, do you have any thoughts on maybe if it's just all hype right now, or as a Luddite yourself, I'm just curious because you know that's your slang. That's your that is after all your brand. Well, it just feels like almost like the dot com bubble to me. All this Docker and containerization hype, and you go to these conferences, and it's just what everybody's talking about. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it really is the future, and there is some real benefit to it. But to me, it feels like the way we were doing things and are currently doing things isn't necessarily broken. So why do we need to to do it in such a different way? Mm. So I don't know, but that's my whole shtick, isn't it? That I, you know, I'm sitting here using XFCE. That's why I asked you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wimpy, I think maybe it's perhaps I've walked away and I've just seen a little glimpse of the enterprise. Maybe there could be a mix of traditional and this new fangled next generation container delivery system. What do you well, think? Well, if we just take containers out of the equation for the moment, this all started with a conversation about um, file systems and that Linux was not competing with ZFS. With all of the options of file systems we have, we don't have something that competes with ZFS. But then there's that presentation there which shows some uh, fantastic analytics using, you know, Postgres. Mongo, when et cetera, yeah. we had to change our storage when we had to change our storage back end at work um i couldn't in good conscience build a solution around linux for that it wasn't the right tool for the job so we still have all of our processing running on linux and it's backed by clusters of postgres and it runs uh, clusters using celery and all of that is linux mm. but the storage backend we use was a true nas or is a true nas um and that's obviously you know free uh, bsd with mm-hmm. zfs mm-hmm. and big enterprises may not know about um true nas and bsd and they would go to perhaps uh netapp you know they're they're the big enterprise storage server now you'll you'll pay a hefty hefty whack for their solutions and i went along to their um sales you know demo day and it's all very impressive but it doesn't do anything that true nas doesn't do right. and the true nas is a fraction of the price like one tenth of the price for an equivalently spec system so the enterprises today will be using netapp and give it time linux will have a file system that does compete with the likes of but, ZFS but Wimby, and NetApp. I mean, so you and when pr- that time comes, it will be it will be the new Docker. You know, the the fantastic ah, new file system for Linux will okay. be the new hot thing in in some years' time. And in okay. the meantime, people are already solving their enterprise storage solutions either by using Linux and XFS on LVMs. Or some are already using uh, B3FS. Mm-hmm. But I think the file system will be the new hotness in a few years' time. Can I just ask what's with the uh, what's with the dispute between how it's pronounced? I thought it was pretty conclusively con- pronounced ButterFS. Nobody, um, wa- nobody wants to say. I, well, noticed, I know half of you are B- calling it Btree. I realize it's based on a Btree file system. I mean, I get that, but yeah. don't the developers call it ButterFS? 
Yeah, so it, it is a B-tree file system, <laughs> yes. and B-tree-FS is easier to say than the sort of the bastardized okay. right. butter-FS, right. so it's just easier to say I'll give it. I'll give it. I like it. And actually, like, the, the other reason I like FS. it... The other reason I like it is because I think it's actually good to remind the folks listening what it's based on, uh, because those of us who were Novell Network admins back in the three days also remember B-tree-based file systems and how many effing problems we had mm. with them. This is not a new file system hierarchy method. And those of us who <laughs> had to administer network systems. Right? That's a good point. Yes. Those, I, yeah. I know. It's funny because, yeah. see, people listen and they're like, oh, Chris had file system problems. He doesn't know what he's been doing. Uh, hello, I've been using B-Treve-based file systems probably since before you've been using computers, most of you out there listening. I had to administer network systems way back in the day when people still used DOS, DOS and they had an auto-exec bat file that mapped a drive to a Netware server that had a B-Treve-based file system. And you know what? I specifically had to create a file system checker when that server rebooted, which, to be honest with you, only happened about every 500 days because Netware was pretty baller with the uptime. And then it would have to check the file system and do a whole bunch of fixes. And so when ButterFS came around or B-TreeFS came around, I thought to myself, and my first thought, I'm not even kidding you, this is years and years and years ago, like Joe said, back when Brian and I were still doing the Linux Action Show. And maybe I even said this on air. I doubt I did because it sounded like a dumbass thing to say. But now in retrospect, I think I was right. Really? A Petri file system? Is that a good idea? Because I remember that being real bad. I remember that being real bad. Like, it was so bad, you guys, that I, I was happy to move people over to NTFS. Okay? I was, yeah. That's how mad it was. I was yeah. It was real bad. Okay. I was like, yeah, this is, this NT4 server would be better. And for for a little while it was better. But then I I shook that off too. Uh yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on and uh I actually love this next thing uh because it came from uh, somebody in the community real close to us and uh it involves somebody who's been made massive contributions to uh, the open source community. But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at Linux Academy. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and get the unplugged discount. That's linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. This is a platform to learn more about Linux and all of the sort of open source platform tools around that. I mean, that's everything. So as new things crop up, these guys are advocates of open source they're Linux users themselves, so they pretty much jump on it right away. That's one of the great things about the Linux Academy platform, and that's why it kind of keeps its value a little sharper than pretty much all the other platforms because open source and Linux aren't like a bullet point on like the, oh, let's make sure we cover how to do Nginx. No, 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 as Mr. Obama says, hey, listen. It's actually what they're all about. They have over 1,700 self-paced courses. You can go there and learn, get deep, 7-plus Linux distributions to choose from. They've just rolled out a new certified system administrations prep course. It'll be going live very soon, and it is the biggest and best they've ever done. And what I love about it is they took people that are super passionate about Linux and open source, which I can completely connect with that. And then they say, okay, well, we have friends that are educators, and we know people that are developers, and let's create the Linux Academy platform. And so when you go there, you can choose from 7-plus Linux distributions. And then that, when you choose your distro, say it's like Ubuntu or Debian or, I don't know, CentOS or whatever, you choose that. And then all of the courseware automatically adjusts to match that distro. And, and I can tell you, when we were trying to come up with how-to Linux, like how to like even maybe sort of semi-accomplish that, like uh, I, it, was, it was an unbelievable task. It, and, and so I'm, I super respect that they even just accomplished that part of it. But then to like, they, then they tied it so that way in the courseware when you need a virtual server, they spin that virtual server up 
on demand, and that virtual server matches the distro you chose for the courseware. So everything from top to bottom, like say you went Debian, everything top to bottom is Debian. And then they do scenario-based labs, so you actually deploy the entire software stack you're going to learn. And so when you go to do it in production, it's not the first time you've done it. That's so critical. Uh, I really like that. Plus, if you're doing any of the Amazon stuff, like any of the AWS stuff, and they have a lot of AWS stuff, you don't have to go rent an AWS rig and accidentally pay a whole bunch to Amazon for just learning. It's just included with your Linux Academy subscription. So I want you to go to linuxacademy.com. Check them out. They've got a lot of great technologies, and they have these nuggets that even if you're a little busy and you know you you got two minutes, you can still get value out of your Linux Academy subscription. That's what those nuggets do. It's pretty cool. And it's like you know, back up your rig or figure out how to do something really nice in SSH or finally figure out how to use IP tables. Come on, you know, you need to do it. It's all over there at Linux Academy, and those nuggets are really nice for a quick deep dive. So if you're like, gosh, this week or whatever, I, I just i am really busy and I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of my subscription, those nuggets are available to you. They also have an availability planner, and you just go in there and say, I'm, okay, this week, you know, you got to be kind of organized, but it's kind of slick because you say this week on Monday I'm going to have X amount of time. I won't have any time Tuesday. I won't have any time Wednesday. I'm going to watch TechSnap on Thursday, and then I'll have a couple hours in the afternoon. And then Friday, because I'm a geek, I'm not going out, so I'm going to have like all Friday evening. And so then you just go in there and you tell it how much time you have available, and it will automatically generate courseware that matches your availability. And including like reminders like, hey, bro, you know, you're going to have a thing on Thursday. You better study up. That's kind of nice. And then last but not least, it's not really a feature like that they would put on a bullet point, but their community is stacked full of Jupiter Broadcasting community members. So if you're having kind of a low moment or if you have something to celebrate, there's a lot of your friends over there that will celebrate with you. Um, and a lot of times you'll see me like I'll retweet on, on Linux Academy when a Jupiter Broadcasting member gets their certification because they'll often tweet it out and things like that. It's, it's, it's really cool. So, and I, and I think this is the kind of thing that I would love to see our resources go behind. There's a lot of mainstream, larger educational resources online that uh, they, they really have a limp approach to their Linux and open source you know, support. It's, it's just a feature for them. And uh, screw them because they don't understand how important it actually is. The Linux Academy, they, get that, they, 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 they close that uncanny gap. I think you should go check them out. They're really cool. And they also support this show. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. And I'm glad that they're rolling out all that new stuff. Just go check it out. You'll have your uh, Linux Foundation Certified System Administration course online probably uh, sooner than later. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Big thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. All right, so uh, he didn't join us today, but uh, producer Q5Sys wrote up a blog post about his uh, run-in meeting with Eric S. Raymond. He got a chance to chat, chat with him for an hour or so at FOSCON 2015, and uh, he did a blog post about it, and it uh, got some traction online. He got some uh, our Linux recognition and a few other places, and in there, he linked a Patreon page for, our, uh, for uh, supporting uh, Eric S. Raymond, and... Um, He's now got up to 40 uh, patrons. But what was kind of weird is the backlash online. And, uh, Popey, I know that uh, you uh, saw this uh, and other folks saw it. Uh, um, our friends from the Elementary OS Project saw it. A lot of people thought that it was sort of uh, ridiculous, the idea to, to, to pay for somebody who's contributing to open source because that's the, high, the whole idea of free software, even if it's something really important like NTP. And uh, I look at this and I think this uh, – 
this is kind of this is kind of um, a little sad. Uh, Eric has got forty patrons, and yet he's contributed to some of the most significant co- significant code in in many popular operating systems. Uh, and so, Popey, did you do you remember? Do you kind of can you capture the conversation that you saw on Google Plus? Because I know you commented on there, and and the controversy yeah. that was kind of sort of being brewed. Yeah, it was uh, Daniel Foray from the elementary kind of posted that he was sad that uh, someone asking for uh, donations via Patreon, um, when that was promoted on our Linux on Reddit, there were people dogpiling and saying how terrible this was. And, you know, the guy should just, you know, get a job or whatever. Or, wow. You know, wow. Th- really? This shouldn't. Yeah. But, but, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, if that's the, the, the model that he wants to use in order to, you know, put a roof over his head and pay for food for his cat, then that's, that's his decision. I think it's, I personally think it's quite sad that, um, there are people out there making, uh, you know, don't take this personally. There are people out there making video blogs, right? Which is stuff that is somewhat ephemeral. You know, that video about how awesome those speakers are or that video about how great that game is or whatever is very ephemeral. And the stuff that, the stuff that Eric is making is, much more permanent and the same goes for any any developer of open source software it's way more permanent you know if you contribute to something especially something as significant as ntp or maybe you contribute to mozilla or something else that's open source and and widely used that's a that's an investment and people long after you're gone long after your contribution is finished will continue to benefit from that work and it's quite sad that we value a bunch of videos posted online over and above a piece of software that we well, might use under the covers. So, I mean, all right. Oh, I'm not I, – I do follow what you're saying there. But let's be honest. Uh, that That's sort of like saying that the document, the documentaries of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln are invaluable or the documentaries of the birth of the computer industry are invaluable because – I'm not saying they're inv- – I'm not saying they're not valuable. And I, you know, I personally back some pretty wacky Kickstarter campaigns um, just like anyone else. But I think it's a bit sad that someone who is doing how, such good the, work – Code, how is code any less ephemeral than uh, content? Because the but, NTP project's going to be replaced. The code he's working on may very well never even be used. It may be superseded oh, by on. a completely different how project. Many, how many times do we have conversations about, um, you know, in the, in the context of a security vulnerability in some piece of software, like, you know, some mail server or SSH or OpenSSL or something like that, and everyone then takes a, a sits back and takes a look and says, yeah, oh, yeah. my God, that code's been there for 20 years. Right. That's what I mean, is someone can make an investment of their time that might take them, you know, months yeah. of their time yeah, 20 yeah. years ago, and that's still being used today. Right, that yeah. video that someone made about, you know, okay, those, those interesting videos that you post at the end of some of your you know some of your shows they're interesting but they're not a massive investment in the future in 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 comparison to something like open ssl or contributions to ntp in my opinion i and i i actually think that's a pretty common perception in fact i think i'm pretty much in the minority here but i'll tell you popey what it sounds to me like is it sounds like um idealizing developers like they create some sort of unbelievable contribution to society that cannot be replicated in reality it it gets quickly replaced it's often flawed and not very good take system d dash ntpd take any of the new ntp projects being by by being created by any of the bsd projects what what eric is creating is absolutely useful code and very 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 much a contribution to the greater open source community that said i mean 
you know, things come and go with code, like just like things come and go with content. I don't know if you can attribute a value from one over the other, but I will say in terms the, the one metric you could maybe value impact is uh, user use, right? Oftentimes code created something like an, an infrastructure like, like the NTP client is used by a great more number of people than content is watched by those people or it is used in a much more important scenario. So you could argue right. those kinds of, of value differences. I mean, you could say, you could say, you know, this particular video or documentary had, you know, 50 million people watch it. But you could equally argue that this piece of NTP software has 50 million users. But those 50 million users are using it every day, right. all day. In a very critical you know, way. It's not, it's not a one-off, it's not a one-off, you know, visit yeah. to the cinema, go and see that thing. It maybe touched you. It's maybe something that, you know, will influence your life in the future. But I doubt it's going to, any, any, you know, piece of cinematic, um, you know, is, is going to influence 50 million people every single day of their life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to pick on videos. I'm just trying to no, make the point that some, uh, the, the, the developers sometimes get a bit of a bum deal. But what I also think is that when Daniel raised this, I think he was a little bit glass half empty pessimistic because i think he believes that our linux on reddit is a reflection of the community in general and i absolutely don't think it is yeah i agree there and and rotten though uh do you think there's a i i feel like there's a pretty major difference between the user base back in an open source developer who maybe contributes to several projects and a company who would only support one project in particular. Here, you can you can come work for us and you can contribute to this project, NTP, but only that. Don't you see a difference there, Rotten, or do you not? No, because if that person's working on multiple projects and is benefiting the computer in multiple ways, the community, I mean, then that's actually a negative. But if they're saying you need to work on this, but they're already working on that and they're benefiting the community in multiple ways, it's better to pay them and you know to say here continue doing what you're doing. We appreciate your efforts. And with like NTP, for example, that's 50 million users that are using it every day that have no idea they're using it and have never heard mm, of it. So he's mm. getting no gratitude and he gets no money. He gets nothing. He, he doesn't even get a thank you most of the time. But all these people are reliant on it. And the same thing when, when, when shell shock happens and Heartbleed happens. Why are these companies like Google and Red Hat that are reliant on these people and these projects helping these people? Why is it a negative that when the community rallies around someone and says thank you we want to we want to tell you we appreciate you they get crapped on mm. yeah that it's, is it's true you look at the uh, exactly the case when something when the shit hits the fan with a project and there's a security vulnerability and everyone rallies around and you look on something like hacking news great long thread about how oh it's you know everyone wringing their hands and how lamentable it is that this piece of software is only maintained by that one guy in his basement right and everyone starts throwing money at the screen but then when someone goes out and actually asks up front and says hey I'm that guy who's maintaining that thing that you quite you, you use quite a lot and you quite like. Could you please give me some money? Everyone's like, ah, get lost. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, uh, Ryan, I want to give you a chance to chime. What are your thoughts on this story? So, uh, you guys know that I'm in the middle of a Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and we've gotten shamed for asking for money to develop, you know, our open source project. And I think that people need to just shut the hell up (laughs) and stop shaming open source projects and open source, you know, enthusiasts who are trying to create something for the greater good and for asking for money. I, I don't know that maybe they're just like an outspoken minority, but it's just sad because a lot of these people 
you know, are doing it out of the kindness of their hearts, you know, and, and yeah. they have to pay the bills just like anybody else. And nobody's holding a gun to someone's head and saying, you have to give to this guy's Patreon page. Right. You know, it's he's true. not setting up a paywall or anything to use NTP. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, they don't have to, uh, go after him for asking for money. They just don't have to support him if they don't want to. Wimpy, you have, uh, if, Oh, if, ahead, this was an NT, if this was NTP on an Apple, uh, on an iPhone, <laughs> then it would be an in-app purchase to get the clock to be right most of the time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very nice. Wimpy, you've, you have a little uh, familiarity with uh, co- community contributions. What are your thoughts on this story? Well, well I do. My, f- my first question was for Ryan. Where, where are you getting this pushback and reticence? What, what medium, uh, you know, is it, is it Reddit? Is it? google plus where are you yeah a lot of it's reddit and uh some Mm. google plus but (laughs) i hate to bash on reddit because i actually like reddit but yeah yeah yeah. a lot of it's reddit yeah uh Mm. it's it's interesting because i i haven't come out and said you know i want your money or anything like that i've placed some options for people to choose to donate Mm -hmm. to ubuntu mate Mm -hmm. And my feeling is that the open source community or the Ubuntu community or the Linux community, because I'm not quite sure who who my audience is exactly, it's probably a mixture of all of those, have been overwhelmingly generous. And I've not seen or heard any um, negative remarks about the way we've gone about, you know, requesting funding for... But, but it's a bit different for you, though. It's a bit different for you, though, because, you know, you you started um, Ubuntu Mate while you're currently in paid employment. So, you, you know, you've got a roof over your head and your kids are being fed, whereas uh, someone like Elementary, they're trying to raise money in order to pay developers to do <laughs> well, the project. We don't or even, Nathan Dyer, who's trying to make an app, well, or ESR, who's trying to pay his bills. We don't really so even... This is, this is we, where I'm confused, because what difference... We don't, I'm sorry, I'm just, we don't have to even abstract this. Where the this money's is, going. This is happening today to Jupiter Broadcasting. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I have for a very long time, I have had a vision that I would love to have the primary source of funding for this network be user contri- contributions. So that way I can be extremely selective with sponsors. I can let them go if I need to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I can make changes that maybe are not appealing to a sponsor but are appealing to audience members if I truly believe it's best for the show. And so I've set up a Patreon for the network at patreon.com slash today. And since I converted the Linux Action Show, and since for the last three weeks, I've been experimenting with different formats because not because my co-host has pressured me into it, as which is apparently the new dominant narrative online, or uh, because uh, it's too expensive to do video because I'm still delivering everything as video, uh, or because uh, we're open source zealots, but because I truly believe with the current available technology, I can make the best sh- the best possible show in this one particular way. And I'm trying to think, well, geez, I've been doing this show for 10 years. What do I need? What kind of changes do I make to be able to do it for the next 10 years? So that way I don't burn the F out and I can make this show not just the, something that's kind of like a version of itself, but like even better than itself, what kind of changes do I need to make? And I make those kinds of changes because I know, as somebody who's been doing this show for 10 years, intimately every single hour of the day I think about this show, I know what's best for this show, and what I get for that kind of change is is I get a massive drop-off in support on my Patreon. And, not only that, it comes at a time when I'm trying to ramp up 
support for other open source projects to fund them to improve video production under Linux, and the support uh, drops out from underneath me. So there is very, 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 very much a downside to going to your community for support because when you as the creator and Wimpy, you got lucky this time that you chose to make a decision that's better, i.e. the drop of Ubuntu Software Center, but when you as a creator go to make a change that you know intimately because you are familiar with every single aspect of your show because you think of every second of the day you think of that show, you know what's best for it, you get punished for it. And you have to continue forward regardless. And it it makes me completely rethink going to my community for funding. It makes me completely rethink that. And it makes me rethink all of the emails I get all the time offering sponsorship opportunities because they won't won't bail on me when I go to make something that I know makes the product better. And I know it's the same thing that – I know it's the same exact scenario – that open source projects face today because you watch them try to make decisions that are best for the project and then their community punishes them for it. And then when you take somebody like Eric who goes out there and says, you know what, for a long time I've tried to fit into different corporate cultures but it just doesn't work for me but I still want to contribute. I still want to make a difference. I still want to make a dent in the open source universe. And he goes out there and he asks for support and he gets shamed for it. I think there's also uh, there's another aspect to it in the sense that there's a lot more people who agree with him and think that he should be paid, but they're not as vocal. Yeah, maybe so, right? The people Do you that think just... the people that don't go ahead, Wimpy. You hear you hear the yelling a lot more than you hear. Good job, congratulations, thank you for doing this thing and helping us do all these great features and utilities and stuff. Do you think that people that are criticizing open source developers actively going out and seeking uh, funding to effectively pay for their time and effort are people that think that because you're developing free software, it doesn't cost Mm -mm. time and money to create and develop it? Because I I wouldn't be – that to me is too easy of an answer because it basically assumes that Mm. people, the consumers are dumb. And the consumers are very aware that it takes time and effort to make code and to make software. They're very aware it takes time and effort to make content. What they don't have is they don't have the entire picture. Uh, They have what you are delivering today. They have what works for them today and a concept of that and why it's so great and that's why they chose you to begin with is because it meets all of those things. But what they do not understand is maybe perhaps a zoomed out 50,000 foot view of that you have and, 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 and I, 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 really, I really hate doing this on a Linux podcast but uh, I, I – I mean, he's dead now, so let's just let's just do it. I mean, I think Steve Jobs was kind of best at this. He obviously often knew what was better for the consumer in a lot of cases before the consumer did. And I don't mean today, like with all the crap they do now, but I mean like when they launched the first iMac. I was working at a school district, a school district that had to deploy like a couple of hundred of those things. And uh, I remember the really, really big controversy was this new universal serial bus. We didn't even call it. We didn't call it USB back then. It was this new universal serial bus, and nobody had it, and nothing worked with it, and we thought Apple had screwed us because they had just abandoned the ADB connector that all of our keyboards, all of our mice that we had spent thousands of dollars for the last 10 years on that we had hundreds of used to connect. All of our printers, everything, we had adapters. We could even do networking with these ports, and we thought that Apple was crazy because not another, not a single 
other computer on the market had this universal serial um, bus thing with this weird flat connector. And we thought we were screwed because we bought all these machines and we didn't realize what a mistake we had made. And it was a huge controversy. And now you flash forward and USB is completely ubiquitous. It is completely obvious. It is, it is, it is, it is a no-brainer. And it is that kind of like balls insight to like I'm going to ship this thing even though I know today's market doesn't understand why. And I'm not trying to equate any of that to what I'm doing today or what these other projects are doing today. But what I'm trying to illustrate, the fact of the matter is a lot of times the current market, be a distro consumer, be it a podcast listener or a computer buyer – we, we have uh, – we are very much aware – you know, we like our Lenovo's. We like our Lenovo com- keyboards with our track points that are scientifically proven to be more accurate than the trackpad. And, th- and now that Lenovo is going to make a retro unit, that's great because that's what we like. We're going to make something more. Just like Hollywood makes all of the same dumb movies over and over again. That's why we have Spider-Man three times over again because we like what we like and we just want to stick to that. But sometimes things have to evolve forward. And the problem is it's not always – always great to be community funded when that happens and I, I i i look i'm taking my personal experience and i think boy i think some open source projects could be handicapped by this because you kind of get paralyzed because essentially what it encourages you to do is just maintain the status quo just try to maintain the status quo and make people as happy as possible with the status quo but there's no growth in the status quo just like and and wimpy that's why when a couple of weeks ago when you came on here and and you were like you're like no I know I am staying behind the decision uh, about the Ubuntu Software Center I, I walked away from that episode really respecting your decision based on my experience as a content creator and knowing how that can go when you take something away because you know the end result will be better it it can it can be very controversial now I think this is a particular one the momentum was behind you. But uh, now you're a couple of weeks into mm. it. Is what, do you have any perspective on the, the, the entire – which would, was actually kind of big news for a moment in time? I know. It was bonkers, wasn't it? But, um, yes, the, the groundswell of opinion um, in the Ubuntu Mate community and probably outside it to some extent as well is that it was the right thing to do. I'm getting a lot of requests now asking if Synaptic is going to be the default. So what I'm learning from that is is that at the moment there is no simple way to install Synaptic like there is to uh, install the Ubuntu software or app grid, for example. Mm. And maybe in the next version I will add Synaptic in there as an option for advanced users um, to satisfy you know that request advanced users don't need a one-click button but i think by putting it in there it will appease them now uh ryan uh, can you really blame um you know uh projects like ubuntu that put up like a donation slider or uh, elementary os that make a recommended donation before you download when they get such pushback on crowdfunding that's exactly what the point I was making is I actually used to be on the other side of this, but as time has gone on and I've contributed to more projects, I realized that you, if people are really negative when people like uh, Ubuntu or elementary try to go to crowdfunding, it, then they have to be ready for the um, fallout from that, which is them trying to find other ways to monetize their project. And oftentimes if they make some kind of, you know, partnership with, with a company or they try to sell software 
that's not maybe the core software like add-ons and stuff, they get pushed back as well. So it's a lose-lose situation. So I guess in the end, the creators should just go for whatever they feel like is the right way to to pay for their for their contribution. And yeah, I get it. Some people, you know, some people do contribute in their free time and that's great, but some projects need more love than that. Some projects need more uh, focus than that to compete on, you know, with the proprietary software solutions that are. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, Ryan, finish off the proprietary solutions that are what? The proprietary solutions that are out there. Sometimes some of these open source projects couldn't be competitive if they didn't have people working on them you nearly know, full time. Ryan, it was making me actually the one I was thinking of uh, when you were talking was Ardour uh, a little bit and uh, how Ardour has community funding but also kind of gets pulled around by commercial interests from time to time because that's really where it makes the most of its money, I think. Uh, and that's a, that's a weird dichotomy for an open source project to find itself in because you kind of get pulled around by different priorities, I suspect. Right, and it's like what you said. You know, if these open source projects fight the same thing, they sometimes they get you know sweetheart deals from companies that use their product, but they say you know here's what we want you to focus on, mm. and they you know if they want to be paid, if they want to pay their rent, you know, they have to focus on those things and their user bases might be upset about it, but that's what's paying the bills. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair enough though. I mean, patrons have been doing that for artisans for, you know, hundreds of years. So I don't have a problem with somebody who's prepared to financially back a project to hold some sway over what the priorities of that project might be. That's a good point. Right. It is sort of a, it is a long-standing historical tradition in a sense, isn't it? But what right. about things like the core infrastructure initiative? I mean, shouldn't they perhaps be expanding that, having more companies paying into this pot mm. that then is kind of shared out more fairly amongst all open source projects, not necessarily just the core infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, at a, at a larger scale, these really critical open source projects are being um, taken advantage of by many, many large corporations. Now, though, to be fair, the core infrastructure project uh, has uh, quite a big list of contributors, and they they are you know they just they just announced a new badge program to kind of try to give some sort of certification or whatever to to different projects. Uh, and they're working. I mean, they're they're moving closer to that, Joe, but. Uh, Point well taken is at a certain point, why does it fall on the responsibility of us when there's companies out there like Google, Amazon, Apple, and, and even Microsoft that are shipping projects and products and making billions of dollars off of them? But that's also missing the point that there are other organizations that do exist, like SPI, where people can companies can submit money and donate money to them, or users can donate money to them, that and they will decide who who needs the money at the right time and stuff like that, and they will help before you. So you just give it one organization, hmm. just like the core infrastructure thing. The SPI is essentially that, but for a lot more. Like they're for distros, they're for regular projects. Anyone who actually wants to do it can just join the SPI and get that. But I would also say that the, the distro point. Is a, is a little bit different because with it, when a distro, they, some reason for some people look like distros are getting when they ask for money that they have more work involved, and in some cases they really don't. But like the utilities and the tools that people use to build the distros yeah. just get ignored. So yeah, yeah, I think true. it's easier for like if you have a thousand foot view and you see the distro, you're like, oh, well, they're doing a lot more work. I feel more inclined to give them money mm-hmm. rather than this one little utility over here, and they kind of get ignored. 
Yeah, and looks familiar points out that in some cases, perhaps the backers uh, know better than the creators. I don't know if I always agree with that, but I guess it definitely is worth balancing. And I kind of, you know, in the case of uh, our patrons, I kind of look at the people who comment there as sort of like an advisory board, not people who necessarily know more or less, but people are maybe slightly more invested, so their opinion holds more weight. That's kind of how I look at those folks. Uh, and I think that's kind of an – that's why I think, you know, I mean, Eric uh, Eric S. Raymond is, is one example. Uh, the elementary OS Project is another example. Uh, Matei Project is another example. But I mean there's – there are different projects on there where I think things like Patreon make a lot of sense. I and mean, you could use people that are slightly more invested as an advisory board. And uh, um, I don't know. I think there's something there. But – there's a stigma still after all of these years, not a topic that is new to this network at all. Uh, after all these years, that stigma is – I'm surprised when it comes up, I guess. And maybe that's what I take away from this is after all these years in 2015, I saw it in that thread and I was like, wow. Really? We're still debating this? Really? It's like our version of like the, the, the political debates that never end. But uh, I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts on this. Go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Actually, any topic you think would be worth discussing with our virtual lug, I would love some really good meaty discussion topics. linuxactionshow.reddit.com. You'll also find a feedback thread for episode 107 over there, and you can uh, contribute your thoughts to this episode. And don't forget, every single episode has an RSS feed in different formats. We've got, uh, I think, HD. I don't know. We've got video, at least. And we've got the MP3s. We've got your OGS with your Vorbuses. And uh, we also got yours. Uh, there is a way actually to get WebM. If you're really super savvy, I bet you can figure it out. I'm not going to tell you, though, because it's a horrible format that should die in a fiery, fiery pit of hell. And it costs me a lot of money. It takes a ton of time. And I hate it. But if you're really super savvy, you could probably figure it out. Uh, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Why do I say that? Because all of our episodes are embedded with HTML5 video. And, uh, well, there's... To make that work, you got to use WebM, don't you? But we have RSS, RSS feeds and torrent RSS feeds available of all of our episodes. We have those linked in the show notes. Also links to everything we talked about, including the full version of that IBM mainframe video is in the show notes. And I encourage you to check that out because the demo kind of just keeps getting nerdier and nerdier as it goes on. And what I love about it is it's super obvious. She's not doing like um, easy demo data feeds. She's full-on plugging that thing full of really esoteric, crazy requests and getting amazing results. And you can watch the rest of the video. We have that embedded in the show notes. Also, I encourage you to check out the Linux Action Show's highlight of our trip to LinuxCon 2015. I have that linked in the show notes. I also just submitted that to the Linux Action Show subreddit. And uh, it's an extraction from this last week's episode. And we went down to Seattle. And we really wanted to create what the experience would be like. Uh, A lot of times we go to these cons and we don't know if we can really answer if it's something that's worth your money. You know, the flight, the travel, the ticket. Is it really worth your time? And it's something we've always wanted to be able to answer for you. And so we tried to do that in our coverage in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. So I extracted that component of the show and posted it. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's also on the subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. And it's on the Jupiter Broadcasting SoundCloud account. Yeah, we have one of those. And uh, you can listen to the entire thing. Hey, don't forget, Linux Unplugged is live on Tuesdays. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. I'd love to hear your feedback, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or the subreddit that I've mentioned like a dozen times. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for this week's episode of Linux Unplugged, and I'll see you right back here next Tuesday.
good times, good times. All right. So uh, jbtitles.com, everybody. Let's go pick our title, jbtitles.com. So uh, any other closing thoughts, Mumble Room, on the, any of the things uh, we talked about? I have one about um, the you know the, the asking for money thing. Yeah. Um, like so in this case, Daniel Foray is right. It's ridiculous that these people are getting mad about asking for money, but it really annoys me when people correlate what he did and what Elementary did to what this guy is doing because they're completely wrong. The reason people got mad at Elementary has nothing to do with them asking for money. It's the fact that they insulted everyone before they asked for money. Well, that's true. Yeah, I guess. And it, so, it, it, well, in your yeah, in that in, in your opinion, yes. But yes, insulting yes. calling yeah. people cheaters uh, know, is yes, pretty yes. insulting. Yes, you're right. You're right. And also never having the balls to admit they were wrong and right. apologize. Right. That's that's more important because they they have the balls to say ridiculous stuff like that, but then never actually go. Well, we were wrong. Yeah. Sorry. You do kind of have to have the balls to be be willing to backtrack if you do say something dumb publicly. Uh, you know, it was kind of perfect that Joe was here on the episode where we played a clip from Linus from the '90s. Right? Huh? Kind of fit with your whole stick, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. All right, jbtitles.com. Let's pick our title. Insane in the mainframe is up there. Should we do something? I mean, it's also Linux's birthday. We could do something around that old Linux clip that we played. Um, ButterFS, better than Btree. But I can't believe it's not ButterFS. Oh, of course there has to be butter jokes. Man, those... <laughs> The, the, the I can't believe it's not butter people have gotten so much freaking mileage out of their advertising campaign. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. All right. So here's our top titles. You guys got to go. Uh, the votes are wow. Wow. We whoa, we have like a geez Louise. We have like a 20 boat spread here. So you guys got to you guys got to zero these in a little bit. I, I'm not going with I can't believe it's not butter FS. We can't do that one. So that's our top one right now. But come on. Come on. Uh, insane I like the, insane in the main. Frame. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's tied. Uh, happy birthday, Linux. Hmm. Freedom isn't free. That's not bad. I kind of like, like that, that one. I'm going to boat that one. Uh, Linux. It, it's, the, it's a buck oh five. And Linux in the '90s isn't bad either. I like Linux in the '90s and freedom isn't free. But insane in the mainframe. I wouldn't be too upset if that was our title. But jbtitles.com, bangsuggest.com, boat it up. Hello, everybody. All right. I like freedom isn't free because you know it, it it's very global, and it also is like um, South Park thing. <laughs> hey Chris, yep. I would like to plug something real quick. Right. Uh, for those of you following Mycroft, there are only two of the reduced price early bird mm. Mycroft extendables left. Only two for one twenty nine. Their normal price is one forty nine, and then we've got. Still have 427 of the $99 Mycrofts left. So uh, if anybody is considering getting one of the extendable units, that's the ones with all the ports exposed on the back. There are only two of them at the reduced price left. So if somebody wants to get over there and grab those, I don't think they're going to make it through the rest of the day. Okay. I'm so mad you're trying to pluck your open source solutions right now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, Ham, aren't you going to a Ham convention this weekend? Do you want to plug that at all? Oh, well, uh, it's not necessarily a Ham convention. Uh, There's a jet boat races. I'm going to help with communications. Oh, you're doing Ham radio at a jet boat convention? (laughs) Okay. All right. Never mind. Nobody go to that then. (laughs) That's horrible. Well, that's where my that's where my audio editor is going to be this weekend as a jet boat convention, everybody. <laughs> Future JB jet boat, <laughs> mobile JB three mobile studio in the works. <laughs>